welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Sermon by Brian McLean on April 2nd. Evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, who has caused Holy Scripture to be written for our learning, grant that we may hear and receive your instruction, that through the comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I recently heard a comedian say that when he went to the doctor about his skin rash, the doctor gave him an ointment and told him to apply it religiously. So he applied it on Christmas and Easter. And that's a joke that unfortunately contains a little too much truth, especially in our culture today. But if we fail to stop and reflect on the events that led to the glorious day of resurrection, then we will fail to grasp the fullness of what Jesus actually did. This Sunday, today, and the week ahead is a great opportunity for us to contemplate Christ's final week before Easter and why it had to happen the way it did. Another way to put it is this, why is Good Friday good? Well, Jesus answers this question in our text this morning, but he does it in a way that disturbs our modern sentiments, very much in the same way that it disturbed, severely disturbed even, the sentiments of the scribes and the Pharisees. So early, earlier in this, in this chapter, we are told that they wanted to destroy Jesus. And even in the previous passage before this one, he has called them a brood of vipers, And has said that they are bad trees which bear rotten fruit. And so when the scribes and the Pharisees come to Jesus and ask for a sign, they're not saying that they are this close to following Jesus and they just need just one more piece of evidence. No, their request for a sign is a challenge. Prove to us that you are who you claim you are. But of course, Jesus will not meet them on their terms. They are a wicked and adulterous generation, and the only sign they will receive will happen in about two years from then, when they arrest him, beat him, him, and hang him on a cross to die. Now, by calling this the sign of Jonah, though, Jesus is actually making three important claims. The first claim is about their identity. Jesus is speaking to the scribes and Pharisees, to the religious leaders of Israel. 
But calling them a wicked and adulterous generation is more than just a, like a description of their immediate sins. No, Jesus is comparing them to the Israelites in the wilderness, the people who turned their backs on God after he had delivered them, the people who grumbled and complained despite God's provision for them, a people of whom the Lord said, not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give to your fathers. But beyond that, Jesus is also comparing them to the Israelites of the divided kingdom, the people who broke covenant with God and chased after Baal, Asherah, and the gods of the other nations. The people whom Ezekiel called an adulterous wife who received strangers instead of her husband. The scribes and Pharisees knew their history, and they were aware of the sins of their fathers. They believed they were better than them. They believed they were the faithful generation, the chosen people with whom God was pleased. Yet Jesus says, no, you are just like them, evil and adulterous. So you can imagine their anger. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He's making a second claim that reveals what will happen to them because of their adultery. When Jesus responds to their demand for a sign by saying the sign of Jonah, he is actually making a reference to Deuteronomy 32, a reference that these educated Hebrews would have instantly understood. Listen to a portion of this chapter beginning in verse 18. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. The Lord saw it and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and his daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom there is no faithfulness. They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. Now this passage comes from what is known as the Song of Moses. And it includes the promise that when, not if, but when Israel turns away from God and breaks covenant with him, he will raise up a new nation. The scribes and Pharisees would have picked up what Jesus was laying down. And the accusation would not have been lost on them. And they would have made that connection to Jonah because this, Deuteronomy 32, is precisely the passage that drove Jonah to do what he did. Now, the book of Jonah is often used as a support for international missions. I once uh, was going to teach on Jonah in my previous town, and I wanted to know, it wasn't at my church, it was a different Bible study, I wanted to know what what people were talking about Jonah, how they preached it. So I listened to all the local, I tried to find as many local sermons as I could, just see what these men that I was teaching to would, would get. And every single time Jonah was preached, it was on International Missions Day. And, um, and so Jonah is often used as an example of what not to do. Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh because he was racist. Or Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh because he was a nationalist. Or he just couldn't be bothered to go and share the gospel with people who were different than him. But that is not what is happening in Jonah. Jonah is a prophet. He is a man of God. And as a man of God, his job, like the other prophets, was to call Israel to repentance. We know that Israel was a wicked and idolatrous nation 
And we know that Jonah was a prophet charged with calling Israel to repent of that wickedness and idolatry. And so when God tells Jonah to arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up against me, Jonah knows what this means. He knows the Song of Moses. He knows that God has promised, what God has promised would happen when Israel broke covenant. And he knows what will happen when he goes to Nineveh and calls them to repent. He says as much in chapter 4 of Jonah, after Nineveh did indeed repent. He said, but it says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is not this what I said would happen when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Why would Jonah desire death after the conversion of Nineveh? Because their conversion meant that God was rejecting Israel and replacing them with a Gentile nation. Nineveh's repentance meant Israel's judgment. This is why when God told him to go to Nineveh, he went in the opposite direction. The prophet of God was not angry over the salvation of the Gentiles. He was angry over the end of his people. And the scribes and the Pharisees are also angry at Jesus because he is saying the same thing is about to happen to them. But there is one more claim that Jesus is making that was probably lost on them. And it's wrapped up in the sign of Jonah itself. Jesus says, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, typically people read this and assume that he's just talking about his burial. That Jesus was in the tomb for this period of time, which often leads to a lot of calendar manipulations to make the math work. People often say that Jesus was actually crucified and buried on Thursday, and then there's various ways that you use the Jewish calendar to, to, to support this. The problem, though, is that the Bible is pretty clear on the timeline of the events. Jesus leaves the town of Bethany and enters Jerusalem on Thursday. The Lord's Supper, Jesus' betrayal, and the arrest happened on Thursday evening. His various trials and crucifixion happen on Friday morning. His death occurs at 3 p.m. on Friday afternoon. And by Friday evening, he is laid in the tomb where he remains until his resurrection on Sunday morning. If the heart of the earth is simply his burial, then the math doesn't work. That's only two nights. But Jesus said the sign of Jonah was three days and three nights. The key then is not found in manipulating the, in what we think the calendar is saying about his burial. But, but in order to get a clearer understanding of what Jesus meant by the heart of the earth, we have to take a closer look at what happened to Jonah. Jonah, of course, responded to God's command to go to Nineveh by going in the opposite direction to Joppa and then hopping on a boat bound for Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord, as we're told multiple times in that book. Well, on the boat, we get a foretaste of the gospel story. God has hurled a great wind upon the sea. 
The waves are rolling and crashing, and the boat is about to sink. The pagan sailors pray to their gods, but those gods are powerless. So they look to the strange passenger on their strip, on their ship. His God is the one true God, and it's because of him that God is doing this. Throw me into the sea, says Jonah, and the sea will quiet down for you. They do it, and the storm subsides. The Gentile sailors begin to worship the true God. They are saved. But Jonah is dead. This is how he describes it in his prayer. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the root of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. The waters of the deep are Jonah's graveyard. Throughout scripture, the sea symbolically represents the Gentile nations, while the land represents Israel. Even in the beginning, on the third day of creation, God gathered the seas together and called the dry land to appear out of it, which points ahead to what God would do when he called the land of Israel out of the deep, out of the nations, and made a covenant with them. This is also true of the animals. The, the sea creatures represent the Gentiles, while the land animals represent Israel. In the Old Testament, sheep, goats, ram, oxen, bulls, they represent Israel at the altar, but never fish. Men are often shepherds in the Old Testament. King David was a shepherd, in fact. But in the New Testament, Jesus calls fishermen to be his disciples and makes them fishers of men in order to disciple the nations. Now, the reason I'm emphasizing this fish and sea symbolism is because it helps us to better understand Jonah. Isn't it odd how the sea plays into the story of Jonah, who's going to Nineveh to convert the Gentile nation? Now, take a look at a map. There's not a body of water to be seen around Nineveh. Nineveh is about 200 miles from the sea. Yet half the book of Jonah takes place in the sea. Jonah, as a representative of Israel, wicked Israel, remember, who, like Jonah, has fled from the presence of the Lord, has been cast into the deep and is sinking into the pit. But he cries out to God and is answered. He is rescued by a great fish that swallows him whole. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm ever adrift in the ocean and I need to be rescued, I would prefer it to be a boat or a helicopter, not a giant fish that swallows me. Um, in fact, if you were swallowed by a fish, I would imagine you would think things just got a whole lot worse. But that's not how Jonah saw it. From the belly of the sea monster, Jonah composes a psalm and thanks the Lord for bringing his life up from the pit. So why did God not send another boat to rescue Jonah? Or perhaps an, an angel? Because the great fish represents the great Gentile nation of Nineveh. God was not finished with, with Israel. She deserved to be finished because of her wickedness and adultery, but God was not putting her away forever. Because of her sin, she would go into exile. The Assyrian Empire, of which Nineveh was part, would come and take her away. But she would eventually return. 
And what would be perceived as her death would actually be her salvation. Because the great city of Nineveh, known for her cruelty, violence, and utter slaughter of the city she con conquered, would hear the word of the Lord one time from the mouth of Jonah, and the whole city would repent of her sins in dust and ashes and worship the one true God, just like the sailors on that boat had done. Israel was called out from among the nations to be God's chosen people so that they could bless the nations. Symbolically, Jerusalem was the center of the world, a city on a hill. They were to faithfully worship the true God who made all things and then draw the nations to him. Instead, as Ezekiel says, thus says the Lord God, this is Jerusalem, I have set her in the center of the nations with countries all around her. And she has rebelled against my rules by doing wickedness more than the nations and against my statutes more than the countries all around her. Instead of blessing the nations, Israel was acting worse than the nations. So God could have sent Assyria to conquer Israel without sending Jonah to them first. Israel deserved it, but God is merciful. So about 30 years before Assyria is to conquer Israel, God sends his prophet to them and they repent. That is such an amazing part of the story. Maybe even more amazing than spending three days and nights in the belly of a fish. Jonah walks into the heart of the great city, full of violence and evil, and says, Yet 40 days, and none of us shall be overthrown. That's it. We're not told that he said anything else. But we are told that the whole city repented, everyone from the greatest to the least. This should lead to Israel's repentance, right? They should have seen God's mercy extended to them and mimicked the Ninevites who fasted and covered themselves in sackcloth and ashes. But instead... The story ends with a bitter Jonah sitting outside the city. Jonah, that representative of Israel, is doing exactly what the nation of Israel did when they were carried away into exile. They were angry, they were bitter, and they were jealous. Now fast forward to Matthew 12, and we see the same response. The Gentiles will be confronted by the glory of God, and they will repent but God's chosen people will not. Yet God will still be merciful to them. This is Jesus' final claim. He has first called them wicked and idolatrous, and then he has told them that God will destroy them and go to the Gentiles. And they understood those two things loud and clear. But he is also telling them that they can still be saved. God's mercy extends even to his greatest enemies. The sign of Jonah is that Jesus will go into the heart of the earth, into Jerusalem, where he will be betrayed, beaten, mocked, falsely accused, and hung on a cross. He will die, he will be buried, and then he will rise again. For Jonah, the belly of the great fish was a sign that Israel would be preserved. Yes, they would be exiled. Yes, they would lose their homes and their land for a time. But they would one day return 
and continue as a nation. For Jesus, though, entering into the heart of Jerusalem was not to preserve Israel, but to kill it and create something new. The old covenant was coming to an end, and Israel would have to die with it. The question was, how would they respond to this greater Jonah? You know, Nineveh understood this. Excuse me, let me get some water. Nineveh understood this. Jonah's message to them was not, repent or you will be destroyed in 40 days. It was, you are going to be destroyed in 40 days. New life requires death. Nineveh repented in sackcloth, which is burial clothes. They covered themselves in ash, which is what dead bodies are made of. And they fasted, which is a sign of death. If you don't eat, you die. Nineveh understood that the message was not live or die. It was die in your sin or die to your sin and live again. It is no coincidence that once the sign of Jonah is complete, once the true Israel has risen from the heart of the earth, the nation of Israel will have 40 years before her destruction in 70 AD. The message is still the same. Die in your sin or die to your sin and live again. This wicked and idolatrous nation will have to die, but wrapped up in this judgment of death and destruction is the promise of new life. This new life will come in a mysterious way. For Jonah, his life was spared in the belly of a fish. For Old Testament Israel, she found life in exile under a Gentile nation. Could New Testament Israel now find life? The Apostle Paul writes about this to the Christians in Rome. He says, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too now have been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also receive mercy. The conversion of the Gentiles would lead to the salvation of the Jews, at least for those who turn to Christ. This includes even the ones that put him to death. As Paul said, it's mysterious. But this is how God shows mercy, death into life. Hollywood loves tales of heroic sacrifice, redemption and resurrection. That's why we have so many superhero movies. The hero dies in some way, either literally or figuratively, and then rises from the ashes to save humanity. But Hollywood also trains us to think that we are the hero. Critics call these heroes the Jesus figure, but that's just a name. For them, humanity is where the hero is made. But that is not reality. The reality is that humanity desires death, not life. They may not say it that way because they, they really do want to live, but they want to live on their terms, and that's death. They may not realize it, but it's true. They see themselves dying a heroic death for the world, like a superhero. 
but they would never die to their sins and their way of life. And that's true for all of us. If Christ had not come into our lives, we would be like them. And that's why my favorite story of resurrection is not found in a superhero movie, but in a children's TV show. Do y'all watch Bluey? Anybody? <laughs> You're missing out if you don't. So Bluey is an Australian cartoon about a family of Australian shepherds, a father, a mother, and their two daughters, Bluey, and then her little sister, Bingo. The episodes are only like seven minutes long, and they're about the adventures found in their daily mundane lives. And every once in a while, it hits you right in the feels. If you've watched it, you know what I'm talking about. Um, the episode Copycat begins with Bluey copying her dad. It's silly, and like every good dad does when their child is copying them, he does embarrassing things, so Bluey has to do it too. So they're walking down the street in public, and dad is doing the silly walk, saying goofy things, and Bluey is imitating him as they, as they go down the street in public. And, and, but all of a sudden, they come across an injured budgie, which is a, for you Americans, is a parakeet. And um, so dad, first dad tries to pick up the, the budgie and gets bit. And so he ends up getting a shoebox, packs it full of soft things, gently places the little budgie in it. Then they carefully drive to the veterinary's office and get the budgie to the vet. To the vet and then they sit in the waiting room and wait for the results. The doctor shortly comes out and tells them that, unfortunately, the budgie has died. Bluey, of course, is very sad. And dad comforts her and tells her that it's okay to be sad. Bluey wants to know why the little budgie had to die. And dad says he doesn't know, but it's out of our hands. And so they go home, and the next morning, Bluey is going to mimic her dad by replaying the events that happened. So she recruits her little sister to play the budgie, and she starts doing all the things that she watched her dad do, but in her own childlike way. So she does a little silly walk down the street, and then she finds the budgie. She gets a shoebox, lines it with soft things, places her little sister in it, and drags her to her little play car, and then they drive to the vet's office, and it's all very cute, but Bluey is very serious about this. And she has even recruited her mom to play the vet. And so she brings in the budgie, and mom takes her into the back. But this time, being a good mom, the vet comes back with good news. The budgie's alive. No, no, Bluey says. That is not the way that happened. The budgie has to die. See, I told you, it gets to you. <laughs> My wife's probably laughing because I told her I was going to do this. And she's like, you can't even watch it without crying. You're going to get up here and... <laughs> But the budgie has to die. That's the story in Bluey's mind. So mom, a little hesitantly, but understanding what's happening, takes the budgie back again, then returns and says, Bluey, I'm sorry, but the budgie has died. And just when Bluey is about to respond, her sister Bingo, the budgie, comes bursting out of the back. And she's chirping like a bird. And she's running around the room at full speed. And then she's out into the front yard. She is alive. She's alive. And Bluey is like, no, no, no. She tries to protest, but quickly realizes it will be useless. So she goes outside and sits on the front step. And mom comes out and sits next to her. And as Bingo continues to run around, chirping like a bird who's very much alive, Mom tells Bluey, 
that she's sorry it didn't work out the way she wanted. And mimicking her father, Bluey says, that's okay, Mom. It's out of our hands. Hallelujah. It's out of our hands. If it was in our hands, we would choose death every time. In pursuit of life on our terms, we would only find death. It's only when we pursue death on God's terms that we find life. And that's the glorious mystery. We expect death. It's all around us. We confront it daily. Suffering, loss, death. And that's how the story goes in our fallen world. But then Christ broke into that story. He went into the belly of the beast, the heart of the earth, and conquered death. The story is death, but it's death into life. And yet, we still feel the pain of death, right? It hurts. Luther once said that the story of resurrection is found in every new leaf of spring. But the joy of life never really matches the pain of death, does it? I mean, joy can be euphoric at its best moments, but pain is heavy. There is a weight to death that is never really matched by the joy we experience here. And it sticks around for a long time. Sometimes it never goes away. And yet one day it will. And the weight of glory that we shall experience will be incomparable. That is what Paul says to the church in Corinth. Do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And for this light, momentary affliction, it's preparing us for the eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are momentary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This is why we gather here every week, to enter into the realms of things unseen, through faith, to glimpse the eternal, to die to self, and rise again to new life and obedience to Christ. Something greater than Jonah has come. And he endured the cross and despised the shame so that we might live. As Christians, we are called to rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So for us, Good Friday is indeed good. Because without Friday, there is no Sunday. Without death, there is no resurrection. Let's pray. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com. Oh, yeah.